are smack dab in the middle of our summer message series through the book of Philippians. Um, the Apostle Paul has been painting for us a uh, clear and compelling picture of what a Jesus-centered life looks like and how we can have that ability to live this beautiful life that we all want that's marked by joy and fearlessness and selflessness and counting others as more significant than ourselves. And the Apostle Paul also tells us that as believers, as followers of Jesus, we should avoid certain qualities or distinctives in our lives that are not compatible with the gospel. And so things like rivalry or conceit, selfish ambition, grumbling, complaining. Paul says, hey, Christian, those things are not for you. Believer, those things are not for you. They shouldn't be characterized in your life. And Paul is going to close out chapter two for us this morning by giving us two real life examples of people who are doing this well, of people who are living this Jesus-centered life really well. You know, I've found that the Christian life is oftentimes better caught than taught. All right, so teaching is important. What we're doing right now is important, but I think many times, for most of us, we learn best by hearing and then observing someone else do something well. And so Paul is saying to us this morning, look, everything that I've told you, everything I've been talking to you about for the first two chapters about this joy-filled life, about this Jesus-centered life, now let me show you what I'm talking about, because here's the reality. The reality is this. There is a massive gap between knowing a truth and living a truth. Don't you agree? There's a massive gap between knowing a truth and living a truth. When I was in college, uh, my college roommate was a, uh, a rock climber, and um, he, was, he was really good. I mean, he'd travel out west and do all these uh, crazy climbs and ended up being a guide out west in Yosemite. And so he was, he was really good. And um, if you don't know me, I have two phobias in life. And I, and I probably shouldn't tell you this because I know that some of you sinners are going to rag me about this, but I have, I have two primary fears in life. One is sharks. Um, I have nightmares about sharks. And then the second thing is, is heights, okay? So if sharks ever grow wings, just go ahead and take me out I've, li I've lived a good life, and I'm ready to meet the Lord. And um, so my roommate invited me to go rock climbing with him uh, one time. And so in our dorm room, he, you know, pulled out the equipment, and he showed me everything, and he taught me, hey, this is how you chalk your hands. This is how you kind of put your hands in the crevices of the rocks. This is how you put these little pointy rubber shoes on. This is how you lean back into the harness and you learn how to trust the harness and I'll have you and I'll belay you on the rope and all these things. And so in our dorm room, mentally I had it. And then we went out to the rock and things changed. Uh, my intellectual knowledge of what to do went out the window when I got about 40 feet on that rock face and I looked down at my roommate and he looked like a little Lego man. It was uh, terrifying. And I actually got a, a picture of me climbing that first time, I think, right there. See, that's, that's, what, that's, that's, what I, that's what I felt. That's what I felt like I was doing. I think we actually have the, the actual picture of that. Yeah, that was, that was, that was actually me. He was like, Mom, help. The real thing was a lot different than head knowledge of the real thing. I'll tell you right now. And a lot of people have head knowledge of what the Jesus-centered life looks like, 
but far too many of us never really engage it fully. And we never learn how to stick our hands in the chalk and lean back into the harness of the gospel and take risks into the adventure of God's kingdom. And Paul is saying to us, listen, believer, I want more than head knowledge for you. I want you to experience this. I want you to live this. And so I'm going to give you some real life examples, real people living this life, people that you know. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab that head for Philippians chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 19 and we'll finish chapter 2 this morning. And the first example that Paul lays out for us is a guy named Timothy. Now remember, Paul is, is writing this letter from a Roman prison, he's writing back to his, his church in a city called uh, Philippi. And this is what he writes, beginning in verse 19. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Now, here's what we know about this young guy named Timothy. He was raised by a devout Jewish mother and grandmother, his father was a Greek pagan. We're not even sure if he was actually in Timothy's life. So it's very possible Timothy grew up in a single parent home. In any case, Paul shows up one day and he tells young Timothy about Jesus. Now, Timothy would have been familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, with the prophecies that there was a coming Messiah who would be the savior of the world. And Paul introduces him to Christ and Timothy believes the gospel. And he begins to grow in his faith. And he discovers that he now has new gifts and new passions. And he begins to minister and even travel with the Apostle Paul as they plant churches together. And Paul becomes like a father to him. And Timothy becomes like a son to the great Apostle Paul. And essentially what happens is over time, Timothy ends up becoming sort of a missionary or a pastor so he would stay in these churches that Paul would plant and he would appoint new elders and he would kind of structure the church and help govern the church and give oversight to these brand new baby churches. Some scholars believe that he actually became one of the elders, one of the pastors in the church in Ephesus. And Paul says of Timothy, there is no one like him. There's no one like him. I'm going to send him to you to encourage you, Philippian church. And then Paul tells us why. He goes, Timothy is genuinely concerned for your welfare. In other words, this is a man who cares deeply. This is, this is a humble man. This is a man who is others-focused, not self-focused. See, Timothy cared primarily about two things in his life. He cared about loving and serving Jesus and loving and serving other people. He's not a selfish man. Now, there are a ton of guys in ministry that are self-focused in Paul's day and in our day as well. Guys who care about their own fame, their own recognition, their own brand, not Timothy. 
Paul says there is no one like him. There's no one as selfless, no one as humble, no one who seeks to serve Jesus and serve the church like he does. And I'm sending my best to you to encourage you. I'm sending Timothy. Now notice what else Paul says about Timothy in this text. He goes, Timothy has proven worth. He has proven worth. He's, he's proven himself. He has served Jesus. He has served the church faithfully and fearlessly for a long time now. Now, you guys know exactly what Paul is talking about, don't you? Like we, we all have friends, and then we have friends. They're like real friends. I can remember graduating from high school a few years ago. Why are y'all laughing? Maybe more than a few years ago. But I can remember on that, last, like that graduation day, that last day, we're all together as a senior class, and the guys are like, man, we'll be bros forever. You know, the girls are huddled up like hugging, singing, friends are friends forever. The Lord's the Lord. Of the you guys remember that song? Mike, I'm available for vocal tryouts. I uh, just want to make myself available. Tears with the girls especially flowing like streams of water through the desert, you know. We'll raise our kids together. Let's get married on the same day. Five years later, you're like, Who? <laughs> Who? Did I go to high school with them? Oh yeah, I, think, I forgot. I actually went to high school with them, right? There are friends and then there are friends, like real friendships, people with proven worth in your life. People who walk through the tragedies of life with you. People who are present when it's convenient for them and when it's inconvenient for them. Proven worth. Timothy had that. Let me ask you, do you have proven worth in your life? Are you that type of friend? Do you serve your church in that way, faithful, over the long haul? That was Timothy. And that's what we're called to as well as followers of Jesus. Now look back at verse 20. Paul says, for I have no one like him, talking about Timothy, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Now in verse 21, he begins to contrast Timothy with a group of other people. He says, for they all seek their own interests. Now, you would think that he would say they all seek their own interest, not yours like Timothy, but that's not what he says. He says, for they all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. See, Paul does a little Jesus juke here. And here's what I think that Paul is, is really trying to hit at here. And this is a massive truth. I think Paul is saying, listen, care for one another is care for Jesus. To love other Christians is to love Jesus. See, these other guys don't love you because these other guys don't love Jesus. So friends, hear me. One of the primary ways you love and serve Jesus, and you need to hear this, is by loving and serving one another. Now, you may wish that you could love Jesus and reject Christians. You may wish that you could follow Jesus and reject his church, but you cannot. I have used this illustration before, man, but listen, if you, if you come to me and you say, Chris, I like you, man. I want to hang out. I want us to be friends, but I hate your wife, bro. Can you just leave her at home? I can't stand the sight of her. I can't, the, the sound of her voice drives me nuts. Listen, we're not friends. We're never going to be friends. You cannot be my friend and hate my wife. We are one. Likewise, you cannot hate Jesus and hate his bride, the church, Christians, other believers. 
Now, Paul was keenly aware of this truth. You may remember his story. Paul was a Jesus-hating, Christian-killing terrorist before he met Jesus on the road, on his way to, guess what? Persecute and kill more Christians. And do you remember what Jesus asked Paul when he first encountered him, encountered him on that Damascus road? What was this question? Paul, why are you persecuting me? Now, Paul was persecuting Christians, not Jesus. But Jesus goes, no, 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 no. You are persecuting me. Those are my people. That's my church. That's my bride. And Paul went from hating Christ to being one of the most ferocious Jesus followers in history. So Paul understood better than most that we love and we serve Jesus by loving and serving one another. We cannot disconnect loving Jesus with loving his people. And he gives us Timothy as a prime and compelling example of this Jesus-centered life. And Paul is saying, Christian, live your life like this. Love Jesus by loving others. And then Paul gives us a second example to emulate beginning in verse 25. He says, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. Now notice the language that the apostle Paul uses about this brother to describe this brother Epaphroditus. My brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death. But God had mercy on him and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious." Now, we know virtually nothing about this guy called Epaphroditus. His name seems to derive from the Greek goddess Aphrodite, so he likely comes from a pagan Greek background. He has now come to faith in Christ, likely through the Philippian church. We don't know if Paul led him to Jesus. We don't know if Timothy led him to Jesus. We don't know if it was Lydia, the Philippian jailer. We're just not sure. As far as we can tell, unlike Timothy, He's not a pastor. This guy is not in vocational ministry. This is a regular guy in the church in Philippi, Epaphroditus is. He may have been a school teacher. He may have been a, a welder or a blacksmith. He may have been a real estate agent who is just serving in the church as a deacon or a greeter or a small group leader. We don't know. But here, here's what happens. The church in Philippi hears that Paul is in prison again, this time in Rome, and so they send this man, Epaphroditus, to encourage Paul. Now, you should know, this is an 800-mile trip from Philippi to Rome. This would have taken the average person probably at least six weeks to get there. Now, somewhere along the way, our guy, Epaphroditus, gets really sick, and he almost dies. Now, we don't know what happened. Paul doesn't tell us. We don't know if he picked up the black plague or the Zika virus or Ebola or, or what happened, but the brother is very ill. And we don't know if he's in a coma for a while. One commentary writer that I, that I read this week estimated that Epaphroditus was likely gravely ill for about three months. So maybe we can picture this man holed up in a, in a hospital room somewhere, halfway between Philippi and Rome, half dead. 
And God chooses by his grace to have mercy on this man and to heal him. And get this, instead of like going home, going back to the leadership of the church in Philippi and being like, hey guys, I almost died. I'm tapping out. Like I'm just a volunteer for Pete's sake. I almost died. You, got, you get one of the staff guys to go. Get Jonathan Jones to take this thing to Paul over in Rome, right? I'm going back to welding or selling houses or something like that. That's not what he does. Epaphroditus finishes his mission. And I don't know if this brother's in a wheelchair at this point. I don't know if he's got an oxygen tank strapped to his back and he's like trying to breathe. He finishes his mission. Now he likely has a financial gift from the church in Philippi to deliver to Paul. He delivers that to Paul. He encourages the great apostle at great personal cost to himself. And here's the remarkable thing about this ordinary man. Paul says Epaphroditus is actually distressed, not because he's about to die. He's distressed because his home church in Philippi hears that he's sick and they're worried about him. So he's worried about them because they're worried about him. Right? He's so, so worried because he doesn't want them to be worried about him. He just can't bear the thought that he is adding any stress to these brothers and sisters in Christ that he loves so much. Now be honest. How many of you are, are like that when you get sick? Confession time for me. You guys know I confess a lot of things. Up here it's cheaper than therapy. But listen, I get, I get a man cold. And if you don't know what a man cold is, YouTube it. And I'm, I'm in the bed for like two days. And, and here's what I want. I want a bell to ring. I want a, <laughs> I want a bell to ring so that Cheryl will know the appropriate times to come and fluff my pillow and hand feed me grapes and chicken noodle soup. And I think that that's a reasonable request. And Cheryl, and, and Cheryl the whole time is thinking, good Lord, <laughs> Look, I, I married a toddler. Most of us get sick and we turn into selfish, grumpy babies. Not this guy. Epaphroditus longs for his church family. This guy is on his deathbed and he can't stop thinking about their needs. This is incredible. Now, a lot of us long for stuff, for things, for material things, but for most of us, we don't long for people this way. We don't long for their well-being this way, but if we are in Christ, Paul would say to us, we ought to live our lives this way. Our lives should be marked by deep care and compassion for one another. Then Paul finishes up this section of his letter in verse 29. He says this, speaking to the Philippian church about this man, Epaphroditus. He says, so receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such man. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now, some scholars speculate that the Philippian church may have been just a little bit embarrassed about the whole situation. All right, they collect this gift probably to send to the great apostle Paul. They entrust it to this layman, Epaphroditus, and he's to take it and encourage the great apostle, but he gets sick along the way. And the gift probably doesn't get to Paul for several months. And so maybe they're a little embarrassed by that whole thing. And maybe they're sort of talking among themselves like, man, see, I told you we should not have sent Epaphroditus. We should have sent that guy in our church who does CrossFit, right? 
He's stronger. He wouldn't have gotten sick. Epaphroditus is kind of skinny. Like we should have known not to send Epaphroditus. And Paul is saying, no, you honor this man. You honor this man. And notice the language he uses. He is my fellow worker. He is my fellow soldier. He risked his life, nearly died to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now, what was lacking in their service to Paul was their presence. And so Epaphroditus fills this really important gap in the kingdom partnership between the apostle Paul and his home church in Philippi. He says, you honor this man. You give him nothing less than a hero's welcome. This man sacrificed much for you and much for Jesus. The last thing I wanna kind of give you this morning is three distinctives or three marks of the Jesus-centered life that we get by looking at these two courageous brothers, Timothy and Epaphroditus. And as we go through these marks of a Jesus-centered life, let me just challenge you, let me encourage you to do a self-inventory. As we go through these, just to honestly ask yourself if these marks are found in your life or if perhaps these are things that you need to ask Jesus to help work into your heart and into your life. So distinctives of the Jesus-focused life. Number one, believer, live a radically ordinary Christian life. And I need you to hear this. This is important. So if you zoned out, zone back in. Listen to this. The kingdom of God is built on unsung heroes. Read all of Paul's letters. They are filled with names like Epaphroditus. Half of you guys never even heard that name until this morning. There are tons of names just like this, both men and women. Faceless, ordinary people that the world knows nothing of. Regular brothers and sisters working regular jobs, living regular lives. Men and women who were never missionaries, never pastors, never had their names in light, never had books of the Bible named after them. Ordinary people who faithfully loved and served Jesus and others well. People who gave their lives away to Jesus one small act of obedience at a time. One small act of love at a time, faithful to Jesus while living an ordinary life. And the world was not worthy of them and one day they will reign with Jesus in his kingdom forever. You see, we tend to think that the apostles did all the work in the New Testament, in the early church. They did not. It was the Timothys. It was the Epaphroditus's. It was the Priscilla's, the Aquilas of the early church. The unsung heroes that launched this revolution that we're a part of 2,000 years later. Hey, look, the, the book that we're studying this morning, Philippians, Epaphroditus likely delivered this letter from Paul to the church in Philippi. We have this treasure trove of a letter because of the faithfulness of an ordinary brother in a small church in Asia 2,000 years ago. Isn't that amazing? God oftentimes works most powerfully through ordinary people doing ordinary tasks. And I want you to hear me say this. You do not have to be the next Billy Graham or the next Mother Teresa for your life to count in God's kingdom. I remember when I was, I was a teenager and um, for a number of years went through a really dark, just kind of rough season of life. 
and um, walked through years of rebellion. And I was not a very lovable guy. I was, I was a punk. I was just a punk. And, um, you know, I'm not sure that my parents knew exactly what to do with me. And, uh, but I was in a youth group because my parents made me go. And there was a lady in our youth group named Lee Peavy. And she was a volunteer in the youth ministry. And at the time, I thought she was old as dirt. She was probably like 43 or something like that. Um, but when you're 14, that seems really old. And the older I get, the younger that seems. Um, but she was a volunteer in the youth ministry. And uh, for whatever reason, I have no idea. I certainly didn't have like a warm disposition or an inviting personality. There was nothing about me that said, hey, come invest in me. Like I was an angry young guy. And um, for whatever reason, she took a particular interest in me and she would call my parents about once every two or three months and she would just say, hey, can I pick up Chris and take him out to lunch? And I'm sure my parents were like, please God, yes, somebody come, come pick him up. And um, she would come pick me up and she would take me to my favorite restaurants and she would just sit across the table from me and speak truth into my life. And she would just say things to me like, Chris, I, I know you can't see this in yourself right now, but I see greatness in you. And I know you don't believe this right now, but I know that God has a great plan for your life and he's really gonna use you. And she planted those seeds of, of truth into my heart and they didn't bear fruit for years and years and years. But I'm telling you right now, I'm standing here right now in large part due to a middle-aged volunteer lady working in a youth ministry, living an ordinary life, an ordinary person, faithful, Friend, spend your life one small act of obedience at a time. One small act of service, one ordinary act of love at a time. Take a mission trip. We're sending, our youth ministry is sending 18 people to Clarkston, Georgia next week to love on refugees, and I am so proud of them. We're gonna pray for them next week. Take a mission trip. Wipe that toddler's snotty nose in the preschool department. Invite those neighbors or friends to church or to your small group or to your dinner table. The kingdom of Jesus is not built on superstars. He is the superstar. He is the hero. He's not looking for another one. And his kingdom is built on the lives of ordinary people living ordinary lives, working ordinary jobs for the glory of King Jesus. I love the story of uh, Martin Luther King Jr. One, one time told the story of there was a shoe shiner in Montgomery, Alabama. And this guy took so much pride in his job. He thought it was his gift from God to be the best shoe shiner on the planet. And Martin Luther King would not let anybody else shine his shoes because this guy was so good, he took so much pride in his craft. And Luther went on to say, man, if a, if a man is called to be a street sweeper, let him sweep streets as Michelangelo painted, as Beethoven composed music, as Shakespeare wrote poetry. He should sweep streets so well that they put a sign on that street that says, here lived the greatest street sweeper to ever live. Christian, be faithful to Jesus in your ordinary life. 
Be faithful to Jesus in your ordinary, everyday life. Here's the second distinctive of a Jesus-centered life that we see from this text. Number two, believer, love Jesus most by loving others best. We love Jesus by loving others, period. Friend, let us live humble lives focused on honoring one another. Paul put it this way in his letter to the Galatian church. This will be on the screens for you. Paul said this, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. In other words, you fulfilled everything that Jesus taught by loving, serving, and caring for one another. That's the way you love Jesus and fulfill his law. Christian, this is, this is not a secondary matter. This idea that like being a Christian means we show up to a worship service like this for an hour once a week, that, that idea is wholly unbiblical. Find practical ways to love, care, and serve your brothers and sisters in Christ. Find real ways to bear one another's burdens. This is why we are constantly, as leadership here, we are laying before you, among other things, Opportunities like community groups because we are doing our best to create environments where these types of relationships and this type of life can actually happen and flourish. Listen, you, you will never know people well enough or be known by others well enough to live this kind of life if you're just coming to worship gatherings like this once a week. Now understand, what we're doing right now is is important. I take nothing away from that, but this should be the beginning, not the end of our Christian experience. Our worship services are designed as a springboard to launch us into our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our workplaces to be the church. We don't go to church at New Life. We are the church at New Life. And so get into people's lives. Allow people to get into your life. Begin to love them and serve them well. And as you do that, you are loving and serving Jesus. And isn't that an incredible truth? And the last distinctive of a Jesus-focused life that we see from this text this morning is this. Number three, believer, risk everything for the kingdom of Jesus. Risk everything. Timothy was a picture of this. Epaphroditus certainly modeled this for us. Paul himself lived this out. Listen, all of their lives were marked by taking breathtakingly big, bold, reckless by the world standards risks for the kingdom of Jesus. And in that life of adventure, they found joy. And that's the paradox of life, isn't it? Play it safe. Live a risk-averse life. Live a self-focused life and you will earn misery. But begin to give it all away, to risk it all in something bigger than yourself for Jesus' kingdom and you will find indestructible joy. Jesus' kingdom is the upside-down kingdom and it's big and it's beautiful and it's life-giving. Christian, following Jesus, living this Jesus-centered life will cost you but the reward is worth the risk. And so Paul would say to us, believe or risk it all, because the reward is great. One of my favorite parables that Jesus told in the book of Matthew 
you guys are probably familiar with it. It's a treasure uh, in the field parable. And so uh, basically the story goes that there's this guy and he's walking in this field that apparently is for sale. And as he's walking in this field, he stumbles upon a treasure. And so he kind of opens it up and he realizes what he has. And it's just this invaluable treasure. And so what does he do? You can kind of picture him and he kind of looks around to make sure nobody sees him and he, he buries it. And then he goes home and he begins to sell everything that he has to buy this little field because he knew how valuable that treasure was. And you have to know that everybody in his life thought he was nuts. Like he comes back and he's selling his house and his car and his expensive shoes and his watch and his iPhone and his iPad. And everybody's like, what are you, what are you doing, man? I gotta buy this field. It's like, this guy has lost it. He didn't care because he knew how valuable that treasure was. And I'm telling you this morning, Jesus is that treasure. He is that treasure. And so let's take big, bold risks together for the kingdom of Jesus. As we close this morning, I wanna invite you just to, to bow your heads with me for a moment. And I want you to consider this question. If, if Paul were describing you today, like he described Timothy and Epaphroditus, if he were describing you, what would he say about you? What would he say about how you invest your life, your time, your talents, your resources, your money? Would he put you forth as an example for new Christians to follow? Or are you self-focused? Are you prideful? Are you closed off to other people? Are you playing it safe in life? Are you driven by fear instead of driven by freedom in Christ? Christians, I'm, I'm just, I'm just going to tell you this morning. Some of us, some of us need to repent. Some of us need to repent because we have found an invaluable treasure in the field, but we're still hedging our bets. We're still playing it safe, and we're still playing games with our life instead of taking our place in the adventure of God's mission in his kingdom. And we're missing out on everything that Christ has for us. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I want you to know that we are thrilled that you're here, but you also need to know that the only way you can find this life that we've been talking about, that Paul's been talking about for the last two chapters, the only way to find this life full of joy and fearlessness and selflessness and risk-taking for something bigger than yourself, the only way you get that life is by giving your sin to Jesus and asking him for a new heart. That's the only way. And so if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I want you to know that's your first step. He invites you in today. He invites you to the table today. He invites you into his family this morning. And so if that's you, if you're like, yeah, man, I, you're talking to me right now. And maybe I'm religious and maybe I'm a churchgoer and maybe I know some Bible answers and stuff like that, but I've never been given a new heart by Jesus in a new life, in a new passion, a new mission. I want you to know that he invites you to do that today. You can do that today. 
If the Spirit is prompting you, if your heart is beating in your chest faster right now, I just want to encourage you, when we're done singing in just a minute, we're going to have some people up here in the front. Let me encourage you, come and talk to us. Let us share with you what it means to start this life, this journey of following Jesus, and let us pray for you. But you need to know that he invites you in today. You can become a son or a daughter, the God of this universe, before you leave this room. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for grace. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for giving us a new heart through Jesus, God, so that we can have this ability to live this life of loving you and serving others, God. Thank you for calling us out of our comfort zone to take big risks for you in your kingdom, God. Even while we live ordinary lives as ordinary people, God. And Father, I pray for each person in this room, no matter where they're at on their spiritual journey, God, please help us take a step today. Whatever that means, Father, for some, maybe it's giving their life to Jesus for the first time. And God, for others of us, maybe it's taking a step of obedience. Maybe it's, as we witnessed earlier this morning, maybe it's being obedient to you through baptism. Or maybe it's going beyond Sunday and serving the church or checking out a community group or beginning to trust you with our money or dragging a secret sin or addiction into the light by just talking to somebody today. God, whatever it is, whatever that step is for each of us, would you remove fear? Would you give us freedom to take a step towards you, God? You are worth the risk and our happiness is found in loving and following you. So help us to do that. We pray it in the beautiful name of Jesus.